The following message is from the audio teaching library of the Briarwood Pulpit, a ministry of the Briarwood Presbyterian Church in Birmingham, Alabama. Our speaker is Dr. Harry Reeder, Senior Pastor of Briarwood Presbyterian Church. It is our hope and prayer that this message will equip and encourage you in your walk with Christ, and as a result, you will be used by our Lord as an instrument of change to further His kingdom and bring honor and glory to the name of Christ. Here now is our pastor teacher, Harry Reeder. While you're being seated, if you have a Bible available to you, would you mind turning with me to Luke chapter 2? I'd like to bring you back to this text uh, in just a few moments as we spend these moments together in our Christmas Eve service in God's Word. I'm probably wondering, where did the title Three Christmases come from? Well, let me get to it by doing this. One of the great challenges of the gospel ministry, particularly when you've been at it now for over 40 years, is the Advent season. And how can we come to these glorious truths and freshness and newness of life and and embrace them and understand them? It's certainly worth it because the tentacles from the incarnation of Christ, doctrinally, biblically, um, and inspirationally, aspirationally, they flow uh, into our lives and into all of life and throughout the scriptures in a glorious way. So it's not all that hard, but it is a challenge somewhat. So I always do a lot of reading and for some reason this year, I was particularly drawn. I don't know why necessarily. My son got me really interested because it was his major area of um, and the Inklings in general and C.S. Lewis in particular. And so I went back to my library with my section on Lewis and I went to that book that I really enjoy reading the essays of Lewis and what's called uh, the uh, God in the Dock. And I knew that he had a couple of, now maybe one of the reasons I'm drawn to it is because as you know, in the, in the, uh, Chronicles of Narnia, uh, he makes the, the platform of Father Christmas an instrument to be able to bring people to the message, um, the biblical message of Christ our Savior being born into this world. And he's using a lot of metaphors in this story to, to give us the message that Aslan is on the move. And so I, knowing that, I'm just, I said, well, let me go back and read Lewis some more on Christmas. He's got two essays in God in, God in the Dock, and one of them is called um, Xmas or Christmas. And what he's doing there is not so much a, uh, an easy shot at Xmas and, st- and, uh, and then exalting Christmas, but he, he looks what's behind the Xmas and what's behind the Christmas from a biblical world in life. And this is a short essay, but very interesting. But he writes another one called, um, another one um, where he looks at the, uh, the glories of Christmas and, um, and what it means. In it, he's got this, this development of what he calls three Christmases. Now, I'm not going to give you his three Christmases, but that generated and stimulated some thought for me. So um, while you would probably much prefer to hear what Lewis has to say about three Christmases, I actually have something I'd like to share with you uh, of how that stimulated me to think about Christmas through that framework of three Christmases that we would be confronted with year after year after year. Pastor, what do you think they are? Well, let me give them to you. There is, first of all, and by the way, I think you're trying to navigate this. It's one of the both 
excitements and frustrations that Christians face at this time of year. You're faced with, I think, three Christmases, and you're kind of in and out of them all the time, and you're kind of wondering about them, and you're not settled, but you're not repulsed either. And one of those is what I would call the cultural uh, consumer Christian at uh, Christmas, the cultural consumer Christmas. Uh, you see it. It's got its mythology that goes with it. It's got its um, and you know, it's like we've been singing all these great Christmas hymns and carols. It's got its secular carols that it plays with it. And uh, and the heartbeat of the cultural consumer Christian is what a great season that we can up the G- the GNP in our nation. And so this is a great. Hey, we like this Christmas idea of buying presents because we like that first word in front of it, buying. And if we can get you to buy a present, that means you're going to buy a present. And if you buy a present, the person you buy a present for is going to feel bad if they don't buy you a present and whatever you buy they're going to try to buy just a little bit better and then next year we're going to keep ramping this thing up and so and then we've got a lot of platitudes that we can put around it so that becomes the cultural consumer christmas and then you've got uh the um the religious liturgical obligatory christmas and that's where um certain segments of the church have taken the advent season and made it not an inst- not an instrument for instruction and aspiration but one of obligation uh, whereby they've gone beyond the scriptures to lay upon the consciences of people certain observances that um, that could be finally could be embraced voluntarily and helpfully, but once they become obligatory, then we have gone beyond the scriptures because the scriptures are clear about worship. Worship is something that is commanded by the Lord that we were created, saved, and providentially upheld to do. And when we worship, we are to do what God has commanded, and uh, that's what we are to do as what God has commanded in worship. Now, it's absolutely fine to make use of instruments, but they can't become matters of conscience. And so, but that element of the church, the religious, so there's a religious, obligatory, liturgical uh, that has gone beyond what would be a, an appropriate use. And then there's, I know what you know what I'm going to say next, there is the third Christmas, which is the one I love, and that is the biblical Christian Christmas, where it's all about Jesus and God's love to send his son, the love of God the Father that gave us his son, the love of God the Son that gave himself, and then the love of God the Spirit who brings us to Christ so that we might know him and make him known in this world. Well, Pastor, what do you feel about those other two Christmases? Well, I, I, I have to confess I have a little bit of an allergic reaction to them. Um, and, uh, but I'm not totally uh, dismissal of them. And there's a couple of reasons why. Um, I believe one of the reasons that elements of the church have reached to it is because the, the Christian Christmas is so effective because it is addressing issues that have far-reaching implications doctrinally and practically. And seeing its benefit has kind of gone beyond its warrant and made them obligatory uh, because they've seen the benefits of focusing once a year on the incarnation and all the places that it takes us doctrinally concerning the gospel of grace. And so I can understand why they've done it, and I think they've overdone it and done it wrongly, but I can understand why, because of the benefits of a Christian, Christ-centered Christmas. It's almost, well, if it's this beneficial, we need to make it obligatory. 
And then the world, <laughs> the world gets confronted with the Christian Christmas and it's just, it's either got to surrender with repentance or it's got to try to imitate and uh, infiltrate. And, um, and that's why, so to me, what the world does with Christmas is a reflection of the effect, and it's the wrong effect, but it's the effect of the Christian Christmas and wanting something like it, but not wanting to repent and embrace its message. And so they get a quote-unquote unreasonable facsimile of a cultural consumer Christmas that's all about profit and self and uh, instead of about the glory of God's grace and mercy. But there's a second reason why I'm not totally repulsed by those other two Christmases, is not only do I see them there out of a response, um, an, almost a response of envy to the Christian idea of Christmas, but I also uh, like them because, for me, they become a bridge that I can talk about the true Christmas to people when they come to the emptiness of those Christmases. There's no, as you know, there's no big message I'm giving you that depression and suicides are up at this time of year because these other Christmases don't really do what everybody says they're going to do. So there's unmet expectations. And we have a wonderful opportunity in the prevalence of the religious obligatory Christmas and the consumer cultural Christmas to be able to tell people the biblical message of Christmas. Joy to the world. The Lord has come to save his people from their sins. In fact, let me read it to you and for you. Would you take your Bibles at the text I ask you to look at Luke chapter 2 and verse 1. Luke chapter 2 and verse 1. In those days... A decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. That with the first registra- that was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was out of the house and lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there... The time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the end. And you know what will be announced after this moment. Unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. You see, now, one of the things I want to do, I know we've only got a couple of days left in the, quote, Christmas season. Tomorrow's Christmas Day. This coming Lord's Day is Christ Sunday. And, uh, but I want you to kind of be equipped to realize the multiple Christmases that are out there. Make use of the ones that don't fulfill by bringing the one that fills you to life, Jesus. Understand those are there because of the impact of the biblical Christmas. But I want you to think about why. In fact, here's what I would really call Christmas. If someone called me and said, and I don't expect this phone call anytime soon. Harry, instead of calling it Christmas, do you have a suggestion? Yeah. My suggestion 
is the festival of the incarnation. Because I think that's historically kind of the way this thing developed. Now, I'm one of the one of the banes of my life is uh, I'm just I love history. And this has been one that has drawn me time and time again, the matter of history behind Christmas. Um, it wasn't an early observance in the church, in the early church. The earliest use of festival was uh, what we call Holy Week, the death, burial and resurrection of Christ. Uh, that that developed pretty early on as a focus season of praise to God around this this greatest week, other than the week of creation, there's never been a week in history like the week uh, that we call Holy Week of Christ's passion to save us from our sins on the cross, the empty tomb in his resurrection and his affirmed appearance. And so that festival developed. And then not long after that, another festival developed. And that was a festival in the New Testament church celebrating the ascension of Jesus and Pentecost, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. There wasn't any festival of the incarnation or Christmas until about the end of the second and third century. And by the way, it didn't start around Rome. Now, I know what almost all of you have heard, and it puts you back on your heels every year. Now, when you celebrate Christmas, that's just a Roman pagan holiday that Christians uh, took over with a knockdown version. So instead of Saturnalia, you've heard that, right? Instead of the solstice celebration of Saturnalia, Christians started celebrating uh, Christmas. Well, here's the problem. Uh, Christmas was not, uh, I mean, uh, Saturnalia was not December the 25th. The solstice was, um, there was a, a dual uh, fight for two dates, December 19th and December 21st, but not December 25th. So if they were trying to replace Saturnalia, why would you put it on December the 25th? There's your clue. Actually, it kind of started in North Africa, probably around Alexandria. And here's the way it developed. You see, they have a reasonable focus upon the date of Jesus' death in the Passover. When you go back to the calendars and you translate into the Roman calendar, the year of Jesus' death would have probably the year of Jesus' death would have took place in the week of Passover, which would have been, and the um, the Good Friday would have been March 25th. And then in Hebrew cosmology, there's no biblical foundation for this, but in Hebrew cosmology was the notion in the wisdom writings, extra biblical wisdom writings, that when a great man died, he died, his death date would be his conception date. So if the death date, if the death date is the conception date, is there one greater than Jesus? So the early church then just went nine months forward, which would be January, which would be December the 25th. And that's how the date was selected. And that's how it started. And the idea was, well, there are three major festivals in the Old Testament. You've got festivals like the Passover and the Feast of Booths. You've got three major festivals. You've really got six, but you've got three major festivals. And so the early church, while they realized it wasn't obligatory, said, well, let's reflect that in the New Testament, the New Covenant people. And let's have festivals whereby we can use those as instruments to focus on certain dynamics of who Jesus is and what Jesus did. And that's kind of how it got started. 
Then it moved into this Christmas of religious obligation, which is beyond, which is inappropriate in the, in the uh, binding of consciences uh, in terms of worship. And then the, and then eventually the, the culture grabs onto it and Saturnalia disappears. Everything else disappears because this becomes something that everyone starts latching onto, but not the biblical meaning of it, but just the idea and the sentimentality of it. And by the way, we can get a good economy going through this thing. And that's what begins to happen. Well, even though those Christmases, I have that reaction to them. That doesn't stop me from rejoicing in a festival of the incarnation or a Christmas because of its implications. Because when I celebrate the birth of Jesus, every time I celebrate it, I am astonishingly, astoundingly moved concerning the authority, the inerrancy, the supremacy. As I sat there and listened to my family read those passages and light that candle and know of those 60-plus prophecies and how Matthew brings out for the Jewish people ten of them in the first four chapters that are fulfilled in Jesus. And all 60 are fulfilled in Jesus. And it is initiated in the incarnation from the place he was born to whom were the parents that were assigned by God for his birth to where he was born to all of those things that are there. I am reminded of the inerrancy the infallibility, the supremacy of Scripture. Secondly, I am reminded that every one of God's promises and prophecies are all yes and amen in Jesus Christ. All of those that are now fulfilled in Jesus, and by the way, those that are yet to be fulfilled in Jesus, they are as surely going to be fulfilled as the 60-plus prophecies are in his, in his birth, His life, His death, His burial, and His resurrection. Yes, the Bible says He's coming again, and Yes, he is. And the Bible says he is ascended and he is coming at the right time. And yes, he is. And the Bible says in that day he will judge the living and the dead. And yes, he will. And your only hope in that day is to be in Jesus Christ. And yes, that's true. God's word is true in Jesus. And yes, he will dwell with his people. Yes, he he descended to save us from our sins. He ascended in the victory of his redemption. And one day, and according to his word, he will descend again, but he won't ascend the second time. He will dwell with his people and they with him in a new heavens and a new earth forever. I'm reminded not only of the inerrancy and the infallibility of the scriptures, that everything is true in Jesus I am also reminded that he was born to go to that cross. From his name, Joseph called him Yeshua, Yahweh saves, because he will, not may, not try, he will save his people from their sins. And when he is born, he'll get wrapped in those linen swaddling cloths. And I can already see 33 years later at his death when he will be carefully wrapped tightly again with linen cloths for his burial after his atoning death. 
And I see the myrrh, the spices that are put in front of him by the kings. And in that day, with royal reverence, women will place spices around his body. When he goes to a tomb, he will be born of the virgin in a stone cave laid in a carved out stone trough. Thirty three years later, after his atoning death, he will be laid in a hewn out stone tomb and a hewn trough. And laid aside in that stone tomb with a stone rolled in front of it. And the five miles from Bethlehem will be transversed to the temple. And even before that, the one who is the temple of God. This one will receive that will receive the command that he himself given. The one who gave the commands of the law, including circumcision, will be circumcised. And the drops of blood on that day will point to the flow of the blood from his side on that last day when he redeems us. I love to celebrate the Incarnation. It propels me to the atoning death and resurrection of Christ, who came to save his people from their sins. And in my mind's eye through the word of God, as I go back to that moment when he was laid in that animal trough, wrapped in cloths, in his initial moments of birth, the divine Son of God had for months been wrapped as that developing embryo, preborn in the womb of the Virgin, conceived by the Holy Spirit. To be born, to live a sinless life, to bear my sins on the cross, and to save me from my sins. And all who put their trust in him alone for salvation. And this one so carefully wrapped in a womb in linen cloths. This one who comes to this unknown place in the world is the one who spoke and all the worlds existed. Who spoke and the stars were flung throughout the universe, who spoke, and all that is, visible and invisible, came into being. And now, God has finally spoken in His Son. Here is the prophet. Here is the priest who can make the atonement for our sins because he's not only the priest, he's the lamb. And here is the king who, when he rises, will tell us, all authority has been given to me. Go and make disciples of all the nations. That's why I love 
the Christian biblical Christmas. And I'll use those others as bridges. And I'll know that their emptiness actually opens up a door for me to tell people about this Jesus. But first, it brings me to humility as a sinner saved by grace. Then it brings me to the triumph of God's grace, to the glory of Christ. My dear friends, I know what's going to happen in this next couple of days. Somebody's going to give a gift and you're going to be like me. You're going to look at Cindy or your spouse and say, honey, did we buy them a gift? They just gave one to us. Did we buy them one? Well, I don't believe that Jesus came as the gift of God so that you would feel guilty and give him something back. I believe that Jesus came to save you, not because what you would give to him, but because what he would give to save you. But I believe the most rational thing in the world is to turn present and presence from a noun into a verb in light of God's gift for you. In light, maybe I could say it like Calvin, Lord, I offer and give my heart promptly to you because you gave yourself savingly for me. But if not like Calvin, just do it like Paul in light of God's grace and mercy. Present yourselves as living sacrifices to Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these moments that we could be together in this your word. Thank you for the privilege to celebrate the gift of your son. Who gave his spirit so that we set free might give ourselves to him our Lord, our King, and our Savior. So, Father, we give you thanksgiving and we give you praise. Even as we, in the midst of the celebrations of a religious world and a consumer secular world, we would be led by your Spirit with your word to the manger, which points us to the cross which points us and prepares us and secures us and saves us for eternity with you. Lord, I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You have been listening to a message by Harry Reeder, Senior Pastor of Briarwood Presbyterian Church in Birmingham, Alabama. For more information on the resources available through Briarwood Presbyterian Church, or for more information on the teaching ministry of Pastor Reader, visit us at briarwood.org or call 205-776-5200.